ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. We find the defendant guilty. Hey guys, welcome to part two of the Sylvia Likens podcast. The Sylvia Likens podcast? Well, <laughs> the fucking guess... Files podcast. Well, I was just trying to episode? say episode, but then or podcast came. Well, part... I guess it's part two of Should the Sylvia Likens park. <laughs> Should we redo this? Uh, bloopers. Oh, no. Uh, all right. Well, um, never mind. Let's... This isn't my half. This is Amber's half, so if it gets <laughs> fucked up anyway. Oh, I mean, I'm man. not going to lie. I butchered some shit in the, in the last episode. But yeah, but at least yours was towards the end. Like, I literally just started recording, and then bam. I'm <laughs> and then immediately fucked, fucked up. everything up. God, uh, I really hope we at least have one listener after this. I'm not going to lie. I hope one not, single person, uh, my boyfriend. hope at least my boyfriend will listen to this. Oh, man. I am so sorry that I let all you true crime fans down. Well, I'm at let this down point. as fuck. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, all right. Uh, anyways, so part two of the Sylvia Likens episode Learn from My Mistakes, yes. unlike Gertrude. Um, so basically, you guys, I'm assuming, have heard part one. If not, let's just say we like Sylvia, we hate Gertrude, Jenny's nice. And Evan Peters. (laughs) (laughs) He was a big part of the movie, not the case. (laughs) Well, part Sorry, boyfriend. I'm just going to say that, because he might listen. Uh, Oh. Yeah, well, I don't think my boyfriend's going to listen, so I guess... No. So, <laughs> who gives a fuck? All right, let's go. All right, anyways. We are now recording. I'm pretty sure we can hear that. <laughs> All right, well, part two is going to include the indictments, the trial. We're also going to cover, um, you know, the testimony, um, all that good stuff in this case. So... Hold on to your seats. I'm ready. I'm in a seat. (laughs) I'm in a seat. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, basically, on December 30th of 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury decided to return first-degree murder um, charges against Gertrude and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Jr. Um, Also charged uh, was Richard... And Coy, uh, so Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, is it Hubbard? Yes. Hubbard. Coy Hubbard. Hubbard. That's a weird last name. <laughs> it's like Coy. Sorry, Coy. Sorry, Hubbard. Sorry, Coy. Cupboard. So all that were charged were, um, they basically all got charged with repeatedly sh- striking, beating, kicking, and inflicting fatal injuries to Sylvia with premeditated malice, which is just mm. basically premeditated intentions yeah so three weeks prior to the filing of the indictments against the five defendants stephanie was released from custody and her her attorney successfully contended that she basically had insufficient evidence against her to support any murder or culmination of fatal injuries charges against her she like had a part in some of it but i think it uh, she's not excused from anything yeah but she did try to do mouth to mouth and i feel like she was probably caught up but in also everything. a piece of shit she's also a piece of shit because she did some shit like let's not be well and and not, not to mention um she's 15. You know, if 
if you guys didn't really pay attention in, you know, the first part too, Stephanie was one of the reasons why Sylvia was even involved in her family. She was her friend acquaintance. Exactly. You know? But basically, um, you know, Stephanie waived her immunity from any potential impending prosecutions while agreeing to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering Sylvia. So all the evidence that they basically had against her as of right now was waived, but if they decide that new evidence were to come into play, then she can still potentially be charged with mm. which you know whatever that evidence exactly for the yeah. prosecution mm-hmm. for sure. So at a formal pretrial hearing that was held on March sixteenth of nineteen sixty six. So now you know we're about three months after um, the initial indictments. Several psychiatrists testified before the judge that their conclusion regarding psychiatric evaluations that they conducted upon all three individuals, they decided that all three of them were mentally competent enough to stand trial. Well, yeah, they're not, like, running into the fucking courtroom acting psychotic. They're clearly holding their own. Exactly. And so um, just as a little refresher for people, I know a lot of people know that, you know, mentally competent enough to stand trial, like, they get the picture of that. Um, But basically, this term applies to a person's mental ability and choosing right from wrong and having the ability to express themselves. So it does not mean that they don't have any mental illnesses. It just means that they they can tell whether or not, you know, something is right, something is wrong, um, and they they know and can understand their expressions. Like, you can have a mental illness like depression, but also be mentally competent. Is Exactly. Like that. Yeah, okay. exactly. So... Going into the trial, um, Gertrude and her children, Paula and John, as well as Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, began on April 18th of 1966, so about a month after the psychiatrist deemed them all competent enough to stand trial. They were all tried together, and the initial jury selection began on this date and continued for several days. Uh, the prosecution consisted of Leroy New, which is a, a very huge uh, prosecutor um, at the time, as well as Marjorie Wessner, who announced their intentions to basically seek the death penalty for all five defendants on April 16th. Um, they also successfully argued before the judge that all defendants should be tried together um, because they were ultimately charged with acting, and this is in quotes, in concert mm-hmm. in their collective crimes against Sylvia, and that as such, if each were tried separately, neither the judge nor jury could hear testimony related to a total picture of mm-hmm. the offenses committed. I mean, that makes, like, complete sense, because in all honesty, the, the kids were there the whole time. Exactly. This was a group crime. This exactly. wasn't just one person, so I think that was probably the best move. Yeah, and so, um, you know, basically, all of the, um, you know, other um, lawyers, I can't talk today, uh, they were trying. They were trying to basically um, put in motion to deny this request of you know going seeking for the death penalty what? and being tried together. I really wish that she got the death penalty. <laughs> but the judge ultimately denied the repeated motions for change of venue and separate trials, um, which later on basically issued their convictions. Fuck yeah! That judge was like, "Listen here, boy." 
<laughs> He's like, yeah, basically. I'm doing it. <laughs> basically. So, yeah, basically within months of the verdict as well, um, you know, this is later on as well. This also ties into a huge Supreme Court case called Bruton versus the United States. It's in 1968. So, obviously, we're in, um, you know, a different time. We're in 66 right now. But this trial basically set the motion for a huge, you know, um, Supreme Court case. That's badass. Yeah. I mean, not badass that this even happened at all, but it's cool to hear, like, the history behind why things are the way they are exactly. now. Exactly, yeah. And and the fact that, like, in order to change a Supreme Court, um, you know, case or, or their minds and, and basically a law, it's very, very hard to change oh, laws. Sure. It's easier to set laws, but it's yeah. harder to change them. That's crazy. So the fact that this trial even, you know, set in motion a change of law means that that was, it's a big deal. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. A big deal. So, basically, after all of that, basically loaded the jury. I mean, each prospective juror was questioned by both sides um, for both the prosecution and the defense in relation to their opinions regarding capital punishment because, mind you, they were seeking the death penalty, but also just, you know, having a penalty for first-degree murder and whether a mother was actually responsible for her children. Mm. So they asked all the, you know, prospective jurors what their thoughts and feelings like were. Like if the kids were, like, basically responsible for their own crimes kind exactly. of thing? Exactly, yeah. Nice. Exactly. So jurors who expressed any opposition to the death penalty were excused by Leroy New, who was for the prosecution, and who either worked with children, expressed prejudice against any insanity defense, or repulsion regarding the actual horrific nature of Sylvia's death, was also excused by um, Leroy New. I honestly still am shocked at, like, what even happened to her. <laughs> like, thinking about being a juror and, like, oh, God, that's fucking... Well, nice. obviously, you know, when you're going through questioning as, you know, a jury, or, I guess, rather a perspective juror mm-hmm. i mean everybody is going to get you know jury duty hopefully everybody. i fucking want jury duty state of arizona if you're fucking listening to me why the fuck haven't you summoned me sponsor us Sp- sponsor <laughs> us state of arizona seriously though i want uh, some jury duty what the fuck <laughs> no but but honestly so you know everybody at some point is going to go through jury duty and there's you know a whole different process for it as well you go through a set of questions that you have to do and both the you know uh, prosecutor and the defense they get to ask whichever questions that they feel will be beneficial for them ultimately that's cool yeah so afterwards so gertrude was defended by william irk becker Her daughter, Paula, was defended by George Rice, and the attorneys for Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, as well as Paula and John Jr., claimed that they had been pressured into participating in Sylvia's torment, abuse, and torture by Gertrude. So, of course, she decided to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. It's just very convenient that people that kill people are not guilty. <laughs> like it's just well, and not to mention, uh, a lot of people think that if they plead not guilty for reason of insanity, that they're going to get a lesser charge or you know less time, which usually is not the case. It t- obviously it depends on the crime, but you know anybody who is going um, you know to be ch- 
charged for 15 years could potentially be in prison for 15 years or less depending on good behavior but if you're being tried for you know guilty or for reason of insanity and you're found guilty or technically not guilty for reason of insanity then sometimes that 15 years could be even longer just based off of your progress and your mental health i hate that (laughs) i hate that i love that though So getting into the testimony, one of the first witnesses to testify on behalf of the prosecution was the deputy coroner, Charles Ellis. Um, He testified on April 29th as to the intense pain Sylvia had suffered, basically stating that her fingernails, again, were broken backwards. There were numerous deep cuts and punctures covering much of her body and that her lips were essentially in shreds. (sighs) Yeah, she repeatedly bit and chewed upon her lips. Dude, if I bite my mouth on the inside of my mouth and you get that little gaping hole, oh, that's yeah. like, fuck, I hate that. And you can't eat. I mean, <laughs> you can't. You, you can't. It hurts too much. Sometimes when a chip stabs me on the top of my mouth, oh, that I just, hate that. just take me now. I hate that. Or when you Ugh. bite wrong on something and your whole jaw kind of, t- <laughs> maybe that's just me because I have TMJ. Maybe but- you're just fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the coroner also testified that Sylvia had been in acute state state of shock, not steak, um, (laughs) for between two and three days prior to her death. Basically means that she had a sudden drop in blood flow throughout her body and she was in hypovolemic shock from blood and fluid loss. Ugh, guys. It's heartbreaking. I'm honestly surprised she wasn't in shock for longer. I, you know... Your body just kind of adapts in a way, if and that's shitty, shitty to say. But everything's shitty in this case. If I mean, real. it's just like you know, if you're doing hard labor, yeah, you build calluses on your hands. It's similar to your body when it's going through torture, and Ooh. you know, it's it's crappy. But your body somewhat becomes immune and numb until it's a breaking point. Until it's breaking point, exactly. So she was in this acute state of shock for about two to three days prior to her death. And the coroner also testified that Sylvia may have been in too advanced state of shock to offer much resistance to any form of subjective treatment in her final hours. (laughs) So although he emphasized that aside from the extensive swelling around her genitals, that Sylvia's body basically bore no evidence of sexual molestation. That's... Thank you. I mean, that's just a different level. I mean, all of it's fucked up, but, like, I'm just glad that yeah. we didn't hear anything else that was yeah. super explicit. Like, and ooh. obviously, she was sexually abused, sure. but there's different forms of sexual abuse yeah. as well. So there was no, um, like you said in part one, there was no breaking of the hymen or anything like that. Um, so nothing too extensive to really call it molestation but definitely sexually definitely sexually abused absolutely so then on may 2nd and 3rd this this is actually when jenny decided to testify against all five defendants i know very very how sad is it to testify at your own sister's trial (laughs) murder trial did i feel for that girl 
So she basically stated that each of those um, offenders repeatedly and extensively physically and emotionally abused both her and her sister, adding that Sylvia had done nothing to provoke the assault and that there had been no truth in either of the rumors that she has been falsely accused of spreading mm-hmm. or the slurs that had made against Sylvia's character. I mean, the autopsy provides scientific proof exactly to that. <laughs> exactly. So during her testimony, Jenny then started test um, or stating that the abuse of her sister and, of course, to a much lesser degree, herself, it started approximately two weeks after they began to or began to live in Gertrude's household. Jesus, two weeks, dude! Like I can't, I can't imagine feeling like this is going to be a temporary home while your parents are working and providing a life for themselves and you. For two weeks later to just be abused by I somebody mean, that's who you just should be trust. fucking real. Gertrude's got like a switch because if she yeah. just is, you know, uh, damn. One minute know. she's fine yeah. with letting them stay there, and the next minute it's an issue. Whoa. So after the two weeks, um, you know, lasted, that's when they started getting abused, and it just escalated from there. Sylvia occasionally just was unable to produce tears because of her acute state of dehydration. Um, At the point of the trial, this is actually when Jenny decided, well, I guess she didn't decide. You don't just decide to burst into tears because she couldn't help it. But she was recalling just days before Sylvia died as, you know, Sylvia said to her, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. Yeah, and I think we covered that in the last episode because... I mean, fuck, that's just, like, <laughs> I don't even yeah. have words for that. Like, it's... I couldn't even imagine if, and the fact that you're a 16-year-old girl and you have, you know what it feels like to be dying is fucking insane. Exactly. Like, I'm 26 and I wouldn't even I touch even, that. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody can, you know. Unless like, you are, um, but, like. Unless you are. <laughs> I mean, like, but that's all fucked up it Yeah, is. exactly. So um, after Jenny decided to t- um, testify against all of the defendants, her story was actually corroborated by Randy Lepper, who stated he had once witnessed Sylvia crying, but that she had shed no actual tears. Oh. He Ow. also visibly smirked as he confessed to having uh, uh, beaten Sylvia on Ugh. anywhere between 10 to 40 separate occasions. You might be a fucking serial killer if you smirk at a fucking murder trial. Yeah, I mean, that just means that you are literally showing no remorse at all. You enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, you enjoyed it. You enjoyed it. it. So then, that was May 2nd and 3rd. On May 10th, this is when a Baptist minister named Roy Gillian decided to testify just basically knowing the teenager was being abused in Gertrude's household, although he had failed to report this information to any authorities because he was informed by Gertrude that Sylvia had made advances to men for money and he believed that girl was being punished for soliciting. Yeah, I don't trust you for... I'm a man of God. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, she was being a harlot. Like, that's kind of like the vibe I get from that. Like, get the fuck out of here. It's also like, what is your duty at this point, you know? To literally be a piece of shit and be like, oh, well, it's holy as fuck to fucking... 
Well, it's, you know, it's, it's also a strange like, thing. You're a fucking adult. You're an adult, and you are literally witnessing this girl, and you knew that she was being abused, and you just decided, meh, that's punishment for being a whore. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, but that's, well. The same day, 13-year-old Judy Duke, who was one of the neighborhood kids Mm -hmm. that also helped abuse Sylvia, also testified, admitting to having witnessed Sylvia once endure salt being rubbed into her sores, just like previously mm-hmm. mentioned. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, everybody was for, there for everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She also testified to witnessing 10-year-old Shirley, which is the daughter of Gertrude, rip open Sylvia's blouse, Whoa. to which Richard Hobbs had made the casual remark, everybody's having fun with Sylvia. Whoa. Yeah. That is not fucking okay. Mm-hmm. So the Holy f- fuck. I'm sorry. I did not know that. And that is like... It's mind-numbing. She was 10 years old. And then this kid is like sexual... Everybody's having fun with Sylvia. Like, uh, how is that okay? I'm not okay. So the following day, Gertrude testified again in her own defense... She denied any responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged abuse, torment, and ultimate death, claiming that her children and other children within her neighborhood must have committed these acts at her home, which she described as being such a madhouse. Because that's an excuse, right? That's an excuse. She also added that she has been too preoccupied by her own ill health and depression to control her children. Dude, I know depressed people, and you don't just go around fucking hurting people and carving into their body. And not to mention, too, the only thing that we both really found that, you know, Gertrude was ill about was her asthma. Oh, God. Do my boyfriend has asthma? And he has never done any of this to me. He has, he's never <laughs> abused me. Never. <laughs> like, what? Sorry, Dana. Sorry. Uh, we'll cut that out. <laughs> no, we're not. So in her response to questioning whether or not she has physically abused the Lycan sister, Gertrude claimed that although she had started to spank Sylvia, she was emotionally unable to finish doing so and that had not hit the child on any further occasions. Whoa! And that is a lie. Yep. So she basically denied any knowledge of Sylvia ever having to endure any beating, scolding, branding, or burning within her own home. Dude, this bitch is fucking crazy. Exactly. So basically going based off of what she was testifying against was that she didn't know any of this was happening under her own nose. Which she was forcing her, all the kids to do shit. Exactly. So, basically what I'm getting at is that she's a very vindictive offender. So, what that typically means is that these vindictive offenders are usually motivated by anger, but their anger is not as generalized as other offenders. In fact, vindictive Um, Offenders are usually motivated by uh, misogynistic anger, and their hostility is centered around women to humiliate and degrade them. That's wild. Vindictive offenders do not offend because they enjoy it. They offend because they enjoy belittling their female victims, and that could 
be corresponded to their sexual gratification. That's raunchy as fuck. <laughs> I'm just say it's, that. Yeah, she was in she was enjoying it and she was enjoying telling other people what to do. Ugh. Two days later, Richard Hobbs testified in his own defense describing how Gertrude had called Sylvia to the kitchen on October 23rd and stated to her, you have branded my children, so now I'm going to brand you. Yeah. So that was all in the prosecution side. Yeah. I mean, that's like intent. Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Hobbs also uh, testified about Gertrude beginning to etch the insult into Sylvia's abdomen before eventually finishing the task. Yeah. So although Hobbs testified this act of branding, basically he also said that Sylvia had begun to, you know, plea for him to stop, oh. and he remained a, um, adamant on the section of branding that he inflicted. Whoa! So he was like, "No, I'm doing it." Yes. Yeah. He oh. wa- he wanted. No, to Evan do it. Peters. He, Why? <laughs> he also testified that he had initially believed that Sylvia would not be at the household on October 26th because Gertrude informed him that she intended to, quote, get rid of Oh, my Sylvia God. The day prior. If that doesn't scream intention, what the fuck does? What, what I'm actually getting from this is that all of these children were basically going through the motions of the social learning theory yeah and that's just basically you know behavior that is learned through classical and operant conditioning it's basically a process that could be you know um like you're on the playground and you see all the kids doing the one thing and you fucking want to do that one thing too sometimes it's in a social setting and cognitively it just occurs through instruction or observation it's kind of just like how we develop to live in the human world exactly yeah you learn from other people's behavior and sometimes learning that behavior is good sometimes i mean that's why kids who get abused uh, by their parents will go on and commit violent crimes exactly so Marie was actually called to the stand as a witness for the defense because she broke down and admitted that she, in the heated moment, decided to get the needle ready for Hobbs, Ugh. which then he used to brand her stomach. Yeah. yeah. On May 16th, a court, court-appointed doctor named Dwight Schuster testified on behalf of the prosecution when questioned by Leroy New, who was the prosecutor, yeah. um, as to the exhaustive interviews and assessments he had conducted with Gertrude, he mentioned that she had been evasive and uncooperative. So she's a bitch. Basically, she, <laughs> so basically she's a bitch. she knew exactly what she was doing, and when somebody questioned her motives, she immediately shut down. God, she wants to escape everything. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Dr. Schuster testified as to his belief that Gertrude was sane and fully in control of her actions, adding that she had been sane in October of 1965 and remained sane to this date. Schuster also subjected to over two hours of intensive cross-examination by Gertrude's lawyer, although he remained steadfast that Gertrude was not and had never been psychotic. So basically, you know, it was being used as an excuse defense rather than a justification. So the reason of insanity was an excuse, not a justification. Oh my God. So true though. So the closing arguments for the prosecution was made by Deputy Prosecutor Marjorie Wessner, 
who delivered the state's closing arguments before the jury on behalf of them. Okay. As each defendant, except for Richard Hobbs, who his head actually dropped into his lap while these closing arguments were happening, basically showing remorse. He was showing remorse. I still don't give a fuck. Yeah. Everybody else, however, remained impassive, and they showed no sign of remorse, and their faces remained blank when discussing the severity of the crime and the closing arguments. Yeah, because most of them are in that family, and I'm just going to take a hunch that everybody in that fucking family is fucked. Exactly. (laughs) So, referencing specific forms and means of abuse and neglect that all the defendants had their hands in... Um, and their collective failure to either help Sylvia or deter each other from mistreating her. Deputy Prosecutor Wessner described Sylvia's abuse as stomach-wrenching mm. and compared her treatment at the hands of all five defendants as being the equivalent in severity to that committed against prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. Oh, my God. Yeah, how so it was like you are like Hitler. Oh yeah, it definitely, oh, you definitely provides a visual for the for the jurors. Yeah, I mean you. I mean I'm not gonna lie. If you fucking tell the juror, hey, this person's like Hitler. This mm-hmm. person's going to fucking jail. And I actually have a a bit of what you know the deputy prosecutor stated in her closing arguments, and it says there is practically no fat on her body. She hadn't eaten for a week. We'll never know the pain and suffering that Sylvia endured. The best evidence of that was the picture of her lips, lips that were bitten into shreds. If that's not a, like, a fucking visual for you. Yeah, I mean, they got to see all the crime scene photos. So, I mean, just looking at that alone, how could you deny it? So, in reference to the premeditated nature of Sylvia's death, Wessner also pointed the jury's attention to the notes in which Gertrude had forced Sylvia to write on October 24th. Stating Gertrude knew that she was going to hold these notes, and until then, and the rest of the defendants have completed the murder of Sylvia, she was going to hold on to them. I'm just curious as to why, like, Gertrude knew she was going to kill her and why she wanted to. Well, it just proves, you know, premeditated. Which, why does she want to do that? I. That $20, man. and For real. For her rent, that was $55. That $20 is almost half. Ugh. That's not an excuse. Mm -hmm. While Wessner was actually portraying her closing arguments, she was also holding a portrait of Sylvia taken before of July 1965 and added, I wish you were here today with the eyes in this picture full of hope and anticipation. Dude, that picture of her, it looks like she's, like, looking into the brightest future. Like, it's crazy. Now, the defense decided that William Urbecker was going to deliver the closing arguments before the jury. He attempted to portray his client as being insane, so Gertrude, Mm. and thus unable to appreciate the severity or criminality of her actions. He stated, I condemn her for being a murderess. That's what I do. But I say she's not responsible because she's not all there. You know what? I understand that you have to have defense lawyers, but fuck them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes I hear some of the shit they do and I'm like, wow, fuck you. Exactly. Now, this also kind of leads to like the social learning theories as well, is that he was basically saying like, she is insane, yada, yada. But everybody else that was in, you know, the defense was, they were children, you yeah. know. 
So there, there's two different types of social lear- learning theories as well. Um, and it can also rate to like the offender typologies. Basically, the two different types is differential association as well as neutralization or drift. Mm. So the difference is that the differential association describes how attitudes and values of criminal behavior are learned by interacting with criminal others, usually within intimate groups. Oh, so this looks perfect. That would explain the children. Yeah, and the family They're in, mostly. Exactly. Um, now, the neutralization or drift describes how social norms are not internalized and therefore drifting the offender out of conformity and leaving them to commit crimes. They usually create distortions as to why they are acting on this behavior to justify their actions. Mm. So they that explains associate mm-hmm. with themselves. That explains Gertrude. Ugh. So now, while um, Urbecker is kind of portraying Gertrude as this insane woman who couldn't be capable of, uh, you know, doing these crimes if she were sane, that mm-hmm. he's basically digging herself a grave. Oh shit. Urbecker, in his closing argument, also stated, if this woman is sane, put her in the electric chair. She committed acts of degradation, and you wouldn't commit on a dog. She has to be crazy, or she wouldn't have permitted that to happen in her home. You'll have to live with your conscience for the rest of your life if you send an insane woman to the electric chair. Um, holding aloft with the autopsy photos of Sylvia, he also instructed the jury to look at the exhibit as if it's a fucking art exhibit. Look at this exhibit of an autopsy photo, nonetheless. And he added, look at the lips on that girl. How sadistic can a person get? The woman, Gertrude, is stark mad. Fuck yeah. But... I mean, yeah, there's there's something going on her, in her head. Uh, yeah. But all of the other following actions leading to this incident just proves that she knew exactly what she was doing. Mm-hmm. She knew it was wrong, which is why she basically Wrote made, no ex- made excuses, yeah. saying that she was a whore, that, you know, boys did this She's to her. She's trying to make it look like she deserved the things that she was doing to her. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Forrest Bowman began his closing arguments in an openly critical manner, attacking the decision of the prosecution to seek the death penalty for juveniles. He stated, I would like to have an hour of the jury's time to explain why 16-year-olds and 13-year-olds should not be put to death. I can agree with that. I, I don't. That. Ag- I don't agree. They should get punished, but I definitely agree they should not get the death penalty. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially knowing what we know about the social learning theory and the, you know, psychological aspects of it all and of the crime. I, I don't agree with that. Um, you know, with them being put to death for this crime, but definitely should be punished. Yes. It's not an excuse. No. George Rice also began his closing arguments by decrying the fact that Paula and other defendants had been tried jointly He tried to sidestep multiple instances of testimony which were delivered at trial, describing that Paula and her mother are by far the most enthusiastic participants in Sylvia's physical abuse, and he claimed that the evidence presented against his client, which is Paula, basically was not equivalent to her actual guilt of the murder. Okay, I like that. 
he's trying to appeal to the jurors saying that it wasn't Paula's fault that she did exactly what Gertrude was doing and that she didn't lay that last hand on Sylvia. Mm. Um, That ultimately was the fatal blow. Yeah. James Netter also began his closing arguments in defense of Richard Hobbs by referring to the loss of Sylvia, stating, She had a right to live in my own heart. I cannot remember a girl so much sinned against and abused. Aww. He then referred to Hobbes' courage in opting to testify in his own defense and the savage and relentless, relentless cross-examination. Damn. He was also subjected by Leroy New, which was also one of the reasons why he wanted to kind of defend Hobbes' courage, you know, for going up against a prosecutor yeah, and allowing himself and accepting that he had done the things that he was doing yeah, and owned up to it and decided yeah. to, to be on the stand. Exactly. James Netter also attempted to portray... Um, Hobbs as a follower type with a personality who had acted under the control of Gertrude, suggesting that he had not carved part of the obscene um, insult into Sylvia's abdomen unless Gertrude requested it. Still. Heavy. (laughs) It's heavy. It's heavy. He also stated that Hobbs was um, guilty of immature and gross lack of judgment, but not of the crime of murder. Okay. Sure. Later on, there was a rebuttal. Leroy New decided to rebuttal the defense counsel's closing arguments by promising to, quote, speak through the mangled and shredded lips of Sylvia Likens. Oh, my God. Fuck. I know. That's graphic Uh. as fuck. So he also outlined the catalog of mistreatment Sylvia had endured prior to her death at at the hands of each defendant basically going through one by one to really just drive that home. He also stated the prosecutor's job is to present the evidence to the best of our ability. Now let's look at some of the responsibilities here. Each one of the five defendants had first and foremost the responsibility to leave Sylvia Likens alone. We had the responsibility to bring all of the evidence we could find that could explain this crime. Now, New also speculated as to the reason why Sylvia did not try to escape from Gertrude's household prior to the abuse, increasing the escalation in the final weeks of her life, stating, I think she trusted in men. I think she did not believe that these people would do this and continue to do it. Oh, shit. I mean, what are you really going to do? Yeah. Well, also, like, when you think about it, going through all of that abuse, I mean, think about not only the physical torture, but the psychological torture as well. You probably are in mental shock. Yeah. So what I was thinking was originally, I'm, I'm sure she was going through acute stress disorder, which is an intense, unpleasant, and dysfunctional reaction to beginning, you know, shortly after an overwhelming traumatic event. But this typically lasts less than a month. Mm. If it lasts more than a month, then it starts becoming PTSD. Oh, I mean, you damn well are going to get PTSD. Exactly. So that's also one of the reasons why she didn't try to escape. I mean, she had PTSD from all of the torment. And you can only imagine what she felt if she even tried to escape. She was already there and willing to participate. I mean, not willing, but didn't fight back in the actions. Imagine if she tried. 
it would only get worse. Ugh, would have. So the convictions, um, the trial of the five defendants lasted for 17 days before the grand jury retired to consider its verdict. It took them 17 days. <sighs> yeah. It took me one day. <laughs> uh, she didn't murder anybody, I promise. <laughs> or did she? Hello, <laughs> <Hola>, my baby. <laughs> On May 19th, 1966, <laughs> after deliberating... Sorry, I just made a really funny joke, and we're cutting that out. <laughs> after deliberating for eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude guilty of first-degree murder, recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. Yes! Paula was also found guilty of second-degree murder. Hobbs, Hubbard, and John Jr., were also found guilty of manslaughter. Upon hearing the judge, the judge pronouncing the verdicts, um, Gertrude and her children busted into tears and attempted to console each other. But Hobbs and Hubbard remained impassive. Mm. Just a blank stare on their faces. Yeah. Could you imagine, like, basically Ugh. getting, you know, found guilty of manslaughter and you're just straight-faced? I mean, you might be in shock as well. I mean, you're right. <laughs> I would just like to think of them as like, cool. You yeah. know, like they just clearly gave no fucks. On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. And the same day, Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, John Jr., they all received the sentences of 2 to 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformatory. That's such a big gap. <laughs> that's, yeah, let's just say two to uh, 21. Yeah, sounds good. Now, there were some retrials in the story as well. Both Paula and Gertrude were retried in 1971. However, Paula just decided to opt to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than face a retrial. Fuck yeah. Gertrude, however, just decided to keep her innocence and was again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison Woo. for the second time. Hell yeah. Of course, um, you know, the following years, Gertrude began to basically become this model prisoner at Indiana's women's prison. Ugh. She worked in the prison sewing shop and was known as somewhat as a den mother to younger Ugh. female inmates. No! Becoming known to some within the prison by the nickname Mom. Whoa! Yeah. I fucking hate everybody. <laughs> by the time of Gertrude's ultimate parole in 1985, she basically changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen. Which Nadine was her middle name. Mm -hmm. A combination of her middle name and her maiden name. Oh, God. And described herself as a devout Christian. I hate when people just use that as an excuse. Exactly. Now, there is a 1985 radio interview interviewing both Hobbs and Gertrude about the events that took place in 1965 with the murder of Sylvia Likens. Radio Indiana. WIBC, Indianapolis. Parole in a 20-year-old murder case. And this is WIBC News. 
May 1965, when 16-year-old Sylvia Likens was tortured to death by members of the Banachevsky family with whom the child was staying while her parents worked with a traveling carnival. When the case broke, Paul Page was our anchorman and the late Bob Hoover, our street reporter. The following is an excerpt from a 1965 newscast in which Bob Hoover spoke with Richard Hobb, who explained what he did to the girl. All I did was write that thing on her stomach, and then I hit her about 10 or 15 times. How come? Well, most because the girl he told me to. Hoover then spoke to one of the Banachevsky children, who told him how the victim was treated. She refused food. We tried to get her soup every once in a while and stuff like that, and she wouldn't take it. Well, how about these scratch marks on her stomach? Who put them on there? I did. Why? Well, Gertie just thought of it. She said, since you branded us, we're going to brand you. So she itched in with a pen, and I went over it. She showed me how to do it, and then I went over it. I, I did it. Did you ever use any hot irons on her? No. Yeah, I, that three on her stomach, I did half of that. Mm. And Shirley Ann did the other half. Where'd the S come from? What do you mean? There's a big S branded on her stomach, right? That's, what, one I'm of her breath. Huh? That's what I'm talking about. Well, that's what you're talking about. Well, how about the inscription on there, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Who put that on? I did. Did you scratch it on there, paint it on there? How'd you do it? Well, like I said before, Gertie wrote it down there with a pen, and I did the rest. Mm. She showed me how to do it. And... Had Gertie abused this girl? Yeah. Gertrude Banachevsky, however, had a different story. I did never beat that girl. Never. She was beat up on by other girls. In fact, my own daughter stopped her in the jaw and broke her wrist. And uh, so, I mean, there you go. And, and, and girls around the neighborhood beat her up, bloodied her nose. I, one girl broke her nose, in fact, I think. Were you ever in contact with the police on any of these occasions? Well, in the last two weeks, uh, in fact, um, uh, I think if, if you'd talk to my daughters, I, I'd ask them that uh, the, the children's father and I are divorced. And he's a policeman in Leechcover was. And uh, I've asked the girls repeatedly, call their dad, and ask them what to do. And in fact, I, I asked Jenny, I said, Jenny, and, and I told Sylvia, I said, Sylvia, I'm going to have to call the police or somebody because I can't have any responsibility. But the police were called only one time, and according to Hobb... Well, she, uh, she, I come in and about, she come up from the basement, and we noticed she was cold and everything, so we carried her upstairs, give her a warm bath and artificial respiration. When, when she stopped breathing, see, we gave her a warm bath, and then she stopped breathing. So I gave her artificial respiration for about 10 minutes. And then uh, I went and called the police. By the time police found the girl, she had been dead some 8 to 12 hours. Now, as you can see in that clip, Gertrude still denied any responsibility for the murder of Sylvia Likens. Yeah, she's living her own world. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I can't imagine just still 20 years later denying uh, any responsibility or, you know, acts on the Sylvia murder. I don't know. She clearly just will not accept it. Now we're going to play a clip on the parole hearing for Gertrude. We have another story of crime and punishment tonight from Indiana. This time the criminal is getting out of jail. But as Edie Magnus reports, not without a great deal of controversy. Under heavy security, convicted murderess Gertrude Banaszewski appeared before the Indiana Parole Board and asked to be released from prison after 20 years behind bars. I'm just asking for mercy, nothing else. Banaszewski was convicted of the 1965 brutal torture and slaying of a neighbor's child, 16-year-old Sylvia Likens. The girl was bludgeoned, scalded, tattooed, and starved by Banaszewski and her children while she lived in their home. Banaszewski was sent to prison for life. 
Banishevsky's request for an early parole from prison outraged victims' rights groups throughout the community who said she should never have a second chance. But in September, the parole board voted to give her that chance. Then protesters collected 40,000 signatures objecting to her release and staged a memorial funeral procession to Sylvia Likens' grave. The wave of protests persuaded a judge to vacate the earlier parole decision and order today's extraordinary hearing before the public. If uh, return Gertrude Banaszewski lose, she might as well put me in prison because I would be in prison in my own home for afraid to go anywhere by myself again. Banaszewski told the parole board she's a born-again Christian. She burst into tears when asked to talk about her crime. I can't do it, and I'm sorry. That's all I can say. And uh, I ask him to forgive me. That's all I can tell you. Once again, the board voted three to two to let Banaszewski go. The bottom line, you cannot bring someone who is dead and gone back to life. And I wouldn't be a member of this board if I didn't believe people could change. Banaszewski will be released soon as she already has a place to stay, a new job, and a new identity so she can try to lead a normal life. Edie Magnus, ABC News, Indianapolis. Gertrude was eventually released from prison on December 4th, 1985. Now, following her release, Gertrude re relocated to Iowa. She never accepted full responsibility for her prolonged torment and death mm. of Sylvia. Still. She never will. I, yeah. She insisted that she was unable to precisely recall any of her actions in the months of Sylvia's prolonged and increasing abuse and torment within her home. She basically blamed all of her actions on the medication that she had been prescribed to as a result to her asthma. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Well, good news is that Gertrude eventually passed away from lung cancer on uh, June 16th of 1990 at wow. the age of 61. So she got she, to live in the golden age. She, <laughs> she was 90s. only released from prison for five years before she passed away. That's still five years she shouldn't be on the, <laughs> on the earth. <laughs> on a life sentence. Yeah. yeah. Reflecting upon the news of Gertrude's death and the issues raised pertaining to her sanity at both of her trials... John Dean, a previous reporter for the Indianapolis Star, had provided extensive coverage of the case, would state in 2015, Whoa. quote, I never thought she was insane. I thought she was a downtrodden, mean woman. Dean also likened the case to William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies. Oh, shit. Although he stated Sylvia's increasing physical and emotional abuse was not a result of children going wild, it was children doing what they were told. Yep, being taught. Exactly. In reference to Gertrude's actual motive for tormenting and ultimately murdering Sylvia, Attorney Forrest Bowman opened up in 2014, stating she had a miserable life. What I think this was ultimately about was jealousy. That's so true. I mean, they had mentioned that um, Gertrude was jealous of the way that Sylvia looked, but also her potential in life. Oh, for it sure. It was in one thing that we read. Exactly. Following her 1972 parole, Paula assumed a new identity she worked as an aide to a school counselor for 14 years in Iowa. 
And having changed her name to Paula Pace and concealed the truth regarding her criminal history to the school district when applying for the position, she was ultimately fired in 2012 when the school discovered her true identity. Dude, I'd be mortified. But you know what? Good for the school board. Oh, yeah. Fuck fuck. But also not good for the school board because obviously she was working for 14 years. Yeah, but people lie all the time on their applications. It's not their fault. I I mean, it is. (laughs) (laughs) She was then married and has two children. Um, The baby daughter whom she has given birth while being tried in 1966. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, whom she named after her mother. Oh, no. <laughs> but was later adopted. Oh, fuck. I know. <laughs> that was a roller coaster of oh, emotions. No. Oh, yes. Oh, oh fuck. fuck. <laughs> the murder charges initially filed against Gertrude's second eldest daughter, the 15-year-old Stephanie, ultimately was dropped after she agreed to turn state evidence against the other defendants. Now, the prosecution did resubmit their case against Stephanie before a grand jury on May 26 of 1966, but the decision to later prosecute her in a separate trial never maternalized, so it mm. never happened. Yeah. Stephanie assumed the new name and became a school teacher. She later remarried and has several children. Ugh. Um, she currently lives in Florida. Oh, well, she... That's Florida. Oh. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> During the arrest of their mother, the Marion County Department of Public Welfare placed Marie, Shirley, and James in the care of separate foster families, and the surname of all three children were legally changed to Blake in the late 1960s after their father regained their custody. Oh, damn. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. each served less than two years in the Indiana Reformatory before being granted parole on February 27th of 1968. Uh, you would think at least Richard Hobbs mm-hmm. would give a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I mean, Richard Hobbs then later died of lung cancer in 1972 at the age of 21. Holy fuck! Okay, but I'm telling you right now, he fucking smoked a lot of cigarettes in an American Is that, <laughs> is that based on your movie opinion? Yeah, it is. It is. He was like, you got a cigarette? <laughs> hey, can I bum a smoke? <laughs> well, he died four years after his release from the reformatory. Wow. Yeah. That's sad. Well, in, in the years between his release, though, um, he's known to have suffered at least one nervous breakdown. So Ugh. he, I feel, probably had a lot of remorse. Ugh, yeah. That probably didn't actually, like, happen until later on when his it finally too fast. set in. Yeah. yeah. Fuck. Yep. Um, Coy Hubbard also remained in Indiana um, and never attempted to change his name. Oh, he didn't give a fuck. Yeah, he was repeatedly in prison for various criminal offenses. Yeah. He was also charged in 1977 Uh-oh. for the murders of two oh. young women. Whoa! However, he was actually acquitted of what? this charge. He killed two women. He killed two women and was acquitted. Dude, you don't go through puberty and witness torture and murder and not torture and murder more later Mm -hmm. wow that's interesting as fuck well speaking of an american crime after the premiere of that drama film (laughs) i'm gonna say it's a drama film oh my god um he was fired from his job (gasps) because of the film 
That's mm-hmm. badass. And he later died of a heart attack in Indiana on June 23rd, and he was 56. Oh, wow. John Jr. lived in relatively obscurity under the alias of John Blake. He became a lay minister. Oh, no. Frequently hosting counseling sessions to the children of divorced parents. Well, I don't like that. I don't either. <laughs> definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely don't, don't like, like that. that. Um, he also readily admitted that he had enjoyed the attention of Sylvia's murder that brought oh. upon him and claimed to have, quote, only ever hit Sylvia once. Okay, liar. Yep. Now, the charges against the other children, the neighborhood children, were ultimately dropped because they didn't have enough evidence against mm-hmm. them. Um, I really think that the main point of the prosecution was to kind of just drive home that Gertrude yeah. um, and her family were the main focus of the abuse. Jenny Likens, however, later married to a guy named Leonard Reese Aww. Wade. That's a mouthful. That's a that's a good old boy. <laughs> the couple had two <laughs> children, but she later died of a heart attack on Aww. June 23rd in 2004 at the age of 54. Damn. Um, at the time of her death, Jenny resided in Indiana still, um, but 14 years prior to her death, Jenny had viewed Gertrude's obituary in a newspaper. She clipped a section out of the newspaper and mailed it to her mom with an accompanying note reading, Some good news. Damn old Gertrude died. Ha wow. ha ha. I am happy about that. Oh, bad bitch. Exactly. Wow. Yep. Um, also, the house in which Sylvia was tortured and murdered um, laid vacant for many years after her death and the arrest of the tormentors, and it was eventually demolished in 2009. Oh, God, that's really recent. Mm-hmm. I mean, for something that happened that long ago. Exactly. Um, lastly, we'll go over this. Um, in June of 2001, there was a six-foot-tall granite memorial that was formally dedicated to Sylvia Likens' life and legacy mm. um, in Indianapolis. This dedication was attended by several hundred people, including members of her family. The memorial itself is inscribed with these words, quote, This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. No, she did How something. sweet is that? Like, she literally changed laws. She changed everything. And there's a memorial dedicated to her. Meh. She changed lives. We should lives. go there. Ooh, okay. We should go there. Hey there, true crime fans. You want to go to <laughs> Indianapolis? Let's all meet up. Well, fuck, guys, that was, like, a very hearty, jam-packed case. If you listen to both the part one and part two all the way through, you're fucking amazing. And honestly, thank you so much for that. Yeah. Um, Our next case will not be this long. We kind of picked a big fatty, so. (laughs) (laughs) We also just kind of wanted to start big. That way you have two parts to listen to to reel you in, and hopefully you continue to listen to our podcast. Yes, so we will see you, guys. We will see you next week. Hopefully. Hopefully. Just kidding. We'll be there. (laughs) Bye. Bye.